This is The Rounds Table. Welcome back, listeners. It's Mike Fralick here. I am here in Scarborough, Ontario with my brother. We just finished a family dinner, and now we're here to talk research. John, welcome back to the show. Hey, thanks a lot for having me. So we're going to go rapid fire, and John will take us away with the first article. What do you have up for us first? So the first paper we're going to talk about was published in New England Journal in May of this year. It's thrombolysis guided by perfusion imaging up to nine hours after onset of stroke, published by Ma et al. Cool. And what was the research question for this one? So they wanted to know, could thrombolysis be safely used for patients presenting after four and a half hours of stroke onset based on the perfusion imaging? Gotcha. All right. So this smells like an important topic, but inform us, why is this so important? Well, you know, the gold standard for ischemic stroke is TPA if people are presenting within four and a half hours of symptom onset. We know that if you give it after four and a half hours, there's increased risk of bleeding and just worse outcomes. Perfusion imaging, however, has been able to identify patients who have small areas of brain that are infarcted, but large areas of hypoperfusion. This is that salvageable or potentially salvageable area of brain. You might have heard of the mismatch. And perhaps these are patients who may benefit because they've not infarcted that larger area yet. All right. So you've set the stage. So what was the study designed to answer this question? This was a phase three multi-center, multinational, placebo-controlled, randomized control trial. Patients were randomized if they presented with ischemic stroke between four and a half to nine hours after onset, or if they presented on awakening from a stroke. So specifically, if patients had a stroke on awakening, they estimated the time of onset as the midpoint of sleep. Now, the trial did need to be stopped early because evidence from Wake Up was published, and that showed actual clinical equipoise. We'll talk more about the Wake Up trial later on, but in this study, the population were those 18 years of or older. They had excellent functional status prior to stroke. So there's the modified ranking score that you'll see, and the patients in this trial had a score of less than two before stroke. Their NIH SS ranged between 4 and 26, and that's the stroke severity scale. And then patients had perfusion imaging, which showed this large area of hypoperfusion, but a potentially salvageable region of brain tissue. They weren't eligible for the study if investigators were considering endovascular thrombectomy, which has also become part of standard of care for certain patients. Uh, this was randomization trial one-to-one -one for alteplase versus matching placebo. There were a number of different outcomes that were looked at. The primary outcome was looking at a score of zero or one on the modified Rankin 90 days after stroke onset. There were also safety outcomes looking at death within 90 days or symptomatic intracranial hemorrhage. Gotcha. Okay. So, you know, really what they're looking at were folks who at baseline had really good functional status and they were coming in with a stroke ranging from four being pretty low to 26 being high and randomized to placebo versus TPA, even if it was more than four and a half hours after the stroke onset. Is that right? Yeah, correct. Perfect. So what did the patients look like who were included? So 225 patients were enrolled. 25% of the patients had presented between six to nine hours. 10% had presented between four and a half to six hours. But the majority of these patients were the wake-up strokes. Patients were from a few different countries, Australia, New Zealand, Taiwan, and Finland. Now, between the two groups, patients were slightly older in the alteplase group, 73 versus 71 years of age. The median stroke severity was 12 versus 10 between alteplase and placebo. And there were shorter times from onset of stroke to initiation of treatment in the alteplase group. 
Cool, that's uh, important to know for sure. So what were the main results here? So the primary outcome was that there were higher rates of a modified ranking score of either zero or one in the Alteplase group compared with placebo. Specifically, 35% of patients in the Alteplase group versus about 29% in the placebo group had a score of zero or one. Okay. Um, remind me, ranking zero or one, zero means no disability whatsoever. Yeah. And one is like a tiny bit of disability. Yeah. Excellent functional outcomes. Okay. All right. Any other key outcomes? So some of the other important ones. So there were a number of secondary outcomes. One of those secondary outcomes looked at the modified ranking score on an ordinal analysis. And that in fact showed no statistical difference between the two groups. From the safety measures perspective, there was no difference in death at 90 days. There was, however, higher rates of symptomatic intracranial hemorrhage in the Alta plays group, which is kind of to be expected. Yeah, I'm not surprised there. So I got some issues with this study, but I'll let you start. What were some main limitations? So they did have to stop the trial prematurely in the context of that wake-up trial. So they didn't get their target sample size. I mean, this was a small randomized control trial, only about 100 and so patients in either arm. They really lacked power to show a significant difference in some of those secondary outcomes. Uh, they had issues with missing data, a lot of issues with loss to follow-up as well. Uh, the other piece is that the door-to-needle time was a about two hours, which is longer than the recommended guidelines of less than 60 minutes, whether or not that would have affected outcomes is one consideration. And these patients were not eligible for thrombectomy, which for certain patients is now a standard of care. Yeah, I mean, that's a great point. And you know, I think the door to needle time being longer, that's probably because they're futzing around trying to figure out and interpret these CT perfusion images. That mm -hmm. takes time. That's going to add time into the process. And I guarantee you, you know, in rural centers, when I work up in Sault Ste. Marie, nope, we do not have access to CT perfusion uh, around the clock. So anyway, this is your article, not mine. Uh, what's a take home point here? So, you know, I guess for patients with favorable perfusion imaging, receiving alteplase after four and a half hours did result in higher rates of improved functional outcomes, but there was a trade-off of increased risk of intracranial hemorrhage. Yeah, I agree with that uh, second point for sure. So is this practice changing for you? Uh, no, I don't think it is. This is a small underpowered trial with really a small effect size. With that said, there was this trial called Wake Up. Now, that trial has been somewhat incorporated into the Canadian guidelines. What they say specifically is that they advise consultation with a stroke neurologist if you're presenting with a stroke and considering TPA after four and a half hours. They're not saying to do it, but they're saying to consider if there's a role for it with expert opinion, but the decision for giving delayed TPA should not delay the decision for other interventions like thrombectomy, which we know are beneficial. Yeah, fair point for sure. All right, cool. So I will jump in with the next study. So this one was entitled Association of Non-Fasting versus Fasting Lipid Levels with Risk of Major Cardiovascular Events. This was published in JAM Internal Medicine in May of 2019. So what was the research question here? So, you know, kind of threading along the stroke cardiovascular disease line, this one was looking at how do non-fasting lipid levels compared with fasting lipid levels measured in the same individual, how are those associated with the risks of subsequent cardiovascular events? Okay, now why would this be important? So, you know, I think the recent guidelines have certainly recommended that non-fasting routine testing of lipid levels is very reasonable. You know, you're going to get similar estimates if it's non-fasting versus fasting, and that's important. You know, no one likes to be fasting overnight, especially when it's for a test that it's not even indicated for, but there are naysayers out there. 
who wonder and question A, the quality of the data, and B, whether or not non-fasting versus fasting, whether that might be associated with the risk of subsequent cardiovascular events. Okay. Now, how did they do the study? So it was a post hoc prospective follow-up of a randomized trial. This is called the ASCOT trial. It was a trial that included about 10,000 individuals. They were at high risk of cardiovascular events, and they were randomized to a torvastatin or placebo. You know, spoiler alert, this trial showed that uh, statins work, as we know quite well, at reducing myocardial infarction and fatal coronary disease. So this was sort of a, a sub-study within that because for every individual, they had both non-fasting and fasting lipid levels before the trial started. Okay, I see. What did these people look like? So um, 8,000 had the non-fasting and fasting lipid levels. 80% were men, average age of 63. 90% were Caucasian. Baseline systolic blood pressure was 166 systolic, which, you know, that's pretty darn high. Um, 35% were smokers and 36% had history of diabetes and about a fifth had stroke or peripheral vascular disease. And what were the main findings from the study? So number one, it really reinforced the point that fasting, non-fasting, you're going to get the same value, the exact same value for LDL, HDL. Interestingly, triglycerides were moderately higher in the non-fasting group, but I usually ignore triglycerides uh, anyway when I get the result back. But more important than that, it showed that the association of non-fasting lipid levels with subsequent coronary events were similar to those who had fasting lipid levels of that sort of same value. So you saw almost identical benefit for a torvastatin, regardless if this was a fasting or non-fasting lipid level. And I think beyond that, that's probably the meat of it. And then results were, as mentioned, you know, really consistent between the torvastatin group or the placebo group in terms of the subsequent events and the levels themselves. Okay. And I guess that makes sense if the lipid levels, fasting and non-fasting were basically similar to begin with. Yeah, yeah, you're totally right. And, you know, it begs the question, well, yeah, did we really need this study? Well, you know, there's always hypotheses and there's always mechanisms we can think of. But when a randomized trial refutes it or rules it in, I think then it's like, okay, our gut feeling is correct. So hopefully this will be enough for the naysayers. Were there significant limitations with the study? I mean, this was a well-conducted, large, randomized trial. Of course, this is a post-hoc analysis, so, you know, the results are exploratory in that sense, but there weren't a lot of limitations here. Good. Um, what do you think the take-home point from all this is? I, I think, again, you know, you don't need to fast for lipids. And also, if you have a non-fasting lipid level, that is going to give you just as much information as a fasting lipid level when you're trying to think about the risk of subsequent cardiovascular events. Is this going to change your practice? You know, more fuel for the fire in that patients really should not be fasting for these tests. Yeah, I think I would agree. All right, so back to you, John. What's up next? So the second paper, it's called Dibigatran for Prevention of Stroke After Embolic Stroke of Undetermined Source. Respect ESAS was the short form. This was published by Denier et al. in New England Journal May 16th of this year. Gotcha. And what was the research question for this study? So in patients with embolic stroke of unclear etiology, is Dibigatran superior to aspirin for preventing recurrent stroke. 
Gotcha. Okay. And so why is this important? Clinically, we see this a lot, where patients present with ischemic stroke and you don't have a cause for it. Cryptogenic stroke happens between 20 to 30% of the cases. Of those, we feel that a high proportion are likely embolic in origin, but despite workup, you're not capturing AFib or flutter, no large vessel atherosclerosis, no other embolic phenomenon identified. The current guidelines recommend aspirin or Plavix and aspirin or aspirin and dipyramidol as the treatment for secondary stroke prevention. Now, we know that DOAX, so you know, apixaban, rivaroxaban, dabigatran are effective in reducing recurrent stroke in patients with AFib. So the question was, is there a role in these patients who have an embolic stroke of unknown cause? I gotcha. All right. So really it's, you know, is there a value add to a DOAC for those with cryptogenic stroke and specifically dabigatran? You got it. All right. And then uh, in a nutshell, what was the study design here? Uh, so this was an international double-blinded randomized control trial. It was a big study. Uh, so this trial population included patients 60 years and older with stroke of unclear etiology in the prior three months or in the last six months if they had one vascular risk factor. Younger patients between ages 18 to 59 were also included if there was a stroke of unclear cause and at least one vascular risk factor. Now, the way that they defined the embolic stroke of unclear cause was first, it was non-lacunar. There was no evidence of extra or intracranial atherosclerosis that was significant. There was no atrial fibrillation lasting longer than six minutes on cardiac monitoring, and monitoring had to be done for a minimum of 20 hours or longer. Uh, and then there was no intracardiac thrombus on TTE or TEE. So there were two treatment groups, uh, randomized dabigatran and aspirin or aspirin and placebo. The dabigatran dose was adjusted for age over 75 or for renal impairment. Aspirin was 100 milligrams once a day. All right, and what did these patients get randomized to? Patients were randomized to either dabigatran or aspirin. The dabigatran dose was a 150 BID. It was adjusted if the age was over 75 or impaired renal function, and aspirin was 100 milligrams once a day. Uh, there were a number of different outcomes looked at. The primary outcome was that of recurrent stroke, be it ischemic, hemorrhagic, or unspecified. There were safety outcomes, including major bleeding, non-major clinical bleeding. Uh, that referred to sort of bleeding that was not major, but did result in hospitalization, medical or surgical intervention, or required the drug to be stopped or interrupted. And what did the patients look like that were randomized? So there were 5,800 patients who were screened and about 5,400 randomized. So pretty big study group arm. There were similar loss to follow-up between the two arms, slightly higher rates of drug discontinuation in the DABI group. Patients were from Europe, from Asia, a few from North America, but 11%, and 4% from Latin America. Baseline characteristics were similar. The mean age was 64, 36% were women. In the DABI group, they were slightly older by 0.6 years. Patent foramenal valley was diagnosed in about 6% of both groups. At the time of randomization, the median NIHSS, that stroke severity score, was 1, so very low, and 17% in both groups had had a prior TIA or stroke, and there were multiple comorbidities shared between the two groups, so coronary artery disease, hypertension, type 2 diabetes, etc. Gotcha. And what did they find? There was no difference in the rates of first recurrent stroke. In the DABI group, 4.1% of patients had a recurrent stroke versus 4.8% in the aspirin group. Now, looking at the curves beyond one year, the curves did start to separate, maybe favoring dabigatran, but this was not statistically significant. They also showed that there were lower rates of ischemic stroke, though not statistically significant, so 6% versus 7.5% in the DABI group. There were lower rates of disabling stroke, so 0.9% in the DABI group versus 1.6% in the aspirin group. 
Looking at some of the safety outcomes, so there was no major difference in major bleeding, but there were higher rates of clinically relevant non-major bleeding, so 70 or 1.6% of patients in the Dabigatran group versus 41 or 0.9% of patients in the aspirin group had a clinically relevant bleed. Okay, so I think really no real benefit, no matter how hard they slice the salami and maybe increase risk of bleeding. Is that fair? I think that's probably fair. All right, main limitations here? Now, one of the things was that only 14% of patients had prolonged AFib monitoring. Now, when you look at the guidelines, usually to call it a stroke of unclear etiology, you wanna have a baseline ECG that's normal, at least 24 hours of cardiac monitoring, but then you're strongly considered to do at least like two weeks of additional Holter monitoring or something. Whereas only about 14% of patients had that prolonged monitoring. Now, if they had missed atrial fibrillation, you would suspect that that would then favor the dabigatran group, which we're not seeing, but just one thing to consider. Gotcha. And uh, take home point here? Dabigatran was not superior to aspirin in preventing recurrent strokes in these patients with an embolic stroke of undetermined source. There were also higher rates of non-major bleeding in these patients. Gotcha. Practice changing for you? No, there's not enough evidence to support empiric dabigatran in these patients. You know, and there was another trial looking at rivaroxaban in a similar role. And again, that was found to be no evidence that it's uh, favorable to uh, standard of care. Yeah, and I think, you know, I have yet to find a reason to prescribe to Bigatran, and that has reinforced my belief. Great. All right, last up, what's the segue here? I don't know. We've been talking a lot about cardiovascular stuff. Now we're going to talk about SGLT2s, but in a very different outcome context. So this study was entitled Fournier's Gangrene Associated with SGLT2 Inhibitors, a review of spontaneous post-marketing case reports. And this is from the FDA published in Annals in June of 2019. What was the research question here? Uh, are SGLT2s associated with Fournier's gangrene? And why is this important? And what is Fournier's gangrene for our listeners? Yeah, so why is this important? Well, there was a uh, dermatologist slash venereologist back in 1883 he was French, and his name was Jean-Alfred Fournier. I'm sure I'm butchering all aspects of his name. And this physician described it as a perineal disease of acute onset in previously healthy young men. So there you go. First described in 1883. It's also known as neck fascia of the perineum. And as I learned, it's a urologist's emergency. So they might not come in for Foley's at 2 a.m., but they sure as heck should come in for Fournier's gangrene. And now why SGLT2 inhibitors? Yeah, good question. I mean, you know, I'm a little bit obsessed with SGLT2s. I haven't received money from the manufacturers of them. And it's not totally clear why this medication would potentially be associated with Fournier's gangrene, but there's been a lot of gruesome case reports. Okay. What was the study design? So very different from the prior three studies. This was utilizing the FDA's adverse event reporting system, also known as fairs, and they looked at published case reports of Fournier's gangrene. It's important to note that the fairs database is a very imperfect system. It's spontaneous reports. Who can submit reports? Patients, physicians, lawyers, and drug manufacturers. And what the FDA did is they used various search terms to try to identify spontaneous reports of Fournier's gangrene with SGLT2s. What did the patients look like? 
So the patients, we don't have a ton of granular data on them, but the FDA identified 55 unique cases of Fournier's gangrene between 2013 and 2019. All of these were uh, published on PubMed. Well, I shouldn't say all of them were, but all the ones on PubMed were also in fairs. And the average age was 33 to 87. That's not an average now that I say it, but there's the range, um, and 80% were men. Okay. Uh, what were the main results? So, yeah, the meat of the matter, ooh, that's a bad pun, is that there are 55 case reports over the six-year period. The time to onset was five days to 49 months after the SGLT2 was presumably started. All these patients were severely ill, required multiple surgical debridements and various surgeries, you know, of the testes, of the scrotum, of the penis. So very debilitating and a high mortality rate, you know, five to 10%. And then they look at, okay, well, how many case reports of Fournier's gangrene were there with metformin? So there were eight cases with metformin, and that was over a 30-year period, and one case reported with GLP-1 agonists. Okay. Now, I guess there must be some limitations with this study. Oh, yeah. There's as many limitations as there are cases reported. So the biggest issue is the FAERS data. Don't have time to go into it, but it's hypothesis generating, and I'll leave it at that. You have no sense of what the absolute rate was. You have no sense of whether or not these cases were being reported and they were correct. There's lots of great literature about lawyers reporting cases as well, because there's a clear vested interest in doing so. And then there's confounding and there's underreporting. So uh, lots of limitations here. Okay. What's the take home point? The take home point is don't use the FAERS database for research. No, take home point is Fournier's gangrene might, might sometimes be related to SGLT2 inhibitor use. So, you know, something I think clinicians to be aware of and maybe for some patients to warn them about this, that's a take home point. Okay. Does this change what you do? I still really like SGLT2 inhibitors, but I do think, you know, it will cause some pause, even though this isn't cause and effect the outcomes and the morbidity is just pretty horrific. So it's definitely something that will be hard not to think about next time I prescribe it. Yeah, fair enough. All right, so we are wrapping up. And before we do, let's get on to the good stuff. So John, uh, what are you reading about? So two things. The first, in the spirit of the Toronto Raptors going pretty deep in the playoffs, there was a great article in the CBC that was published speaking to one of the former Raptors players on the original team, a guy named Murray. He was telling a pretty funny story that when the Raptors first came to town, one of their first home games, he was at the free throw line to do a foul shot and he started to smile. Why was he smiling? Well, he was smiling because the Toronto fans in their enthusiasm were smacking together those thunder sticks, you know, that we used to try to distract the other team. Canadians, Torontonians just didn't know that that was meant to distract, not to encourage the free throw shot. Oh gosh, that's embarrassing. Yeah. He was also smiling because he was getting free health care because now he's living in Canada. All right, and, and you have the, another one yeah, for us. The second thing, maybe a little off topic, but somewhat related. I think our listeners, it would be important for them to know that Dr. Michael Fralick has just recently defended his PhD. So now he is a doctor doctor. Congratulations to Mike. Awesome. Thanks so much, John. And uh, your check is in the mail, but uh, it won't be cashable until I actually start working. Anyway, guys, I think we're probably out of time. John, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, it was a pleasure having you on the show. Thanks again. All right. See you, listeners.
Welcome back, listeners, to another special segment on The Rounds Table. I'm Shlisa Halani, the segment director for the show. This week, we have a really exciting special segment in which we're interviewing Dr. Danny Panisco and Dr. Jillian Spiegel. Dr. Panisco is a general internist at Toronto Western Hospital and the co-director of the Department of Medicine's Master Teacher Program. Dr. Jillian Spiegel is a general internist at Sunnybrook Hospital and the University Health Network and leads the Academy of Resident Teachers Program at the University of Toronto. Today, we will be interviewing these two experts on effective teaching strategies as a resident. Welcome to both of you to the show, Dr. Panisco and Dr. Spiegel. I'm so excited to have you. Thanks for asking us to be here. It's a pleasure to be here. So let's get things started. Dr. Spiegel, um, weaving in teaching time when on a busy inpatient service is challenging. How do you identify teaching opportunities as a resident and take advantage of these? So teaching and learning is frequently happening on both the CTU and subspecialty rotations, whether we realize it or not, whether it's reviewing uh, cases at the end of the day, the med student talking to their senior about something that's happening to one of their patients or doing formal teaching on a specific topic, teaching and learning is constantly happening. Things that we can do to try and make it happen when we're busy, one is to sort of schedule it. So say on Wednesday, we're going to talk about hyponatremia for 10 minutes. Make it something short and something doable. The other thing is that when you're doing even informal things, announce your teaching. Say that you're going to talk about this for just a few minutes. When you're reviewing the different cases of uh, a resident or a medical student and you're sort of teaching different points as you go through it, afterwards you can review the points that you've learned. So, you know, in going through these patients, we've learned X, Y, and Z today. So I think it's important to try and realize that we're constantly teaching our trainees and to try and make sure that they get the most out of every opportunity possible. Great. I love what you said. I think as we go on, we have to keep um, topics focused and try and cover them as we're moving through our busy days. There you are, reviewing what I've taught you. (laughs) (laughs) So Dr. Panisco, at one of our last art sessions, Academy of Resident Teachers, you spoke about promoting understanding and retention. Can you highlight for our audience key teaching behaviors that help to deliver key messages when we're doing teaching? So there's a few that might be useful to highlight as big picture items. One is when you're teaching, think about the organization of your material. One of the things that we often neglect to do is to summarize, and that's really useful after you've been through a five-minute spiel talking to your clerks. Remember to just give that 30-second summary. That helps to reinforce the material you've just taught. Also, use of emphasis. So things like enumerating points, like the five things you need to remember about congestive heart failure. Putting it in that kind of a context is really useful for the clerks. Also, maybe take-home messages like, on the last three clerkship exams, it came out that you needed to know the main antibiotics to treat community-acquired pneumonia. And maybe the last big-picture point for promotion of understanding is to foster active learning. And this can apply to many settings. One, for example, is we ask for consults from other teams every day of the week on the clinical teaching unit. Think about how you can make asking a consult an active learning experience. So you might actually ask the clerk, what questions are we gonna ask cardiology about this patient? And by getting the clerk to think about the focus question, it really crystallizes in their mind the issues related to the patient that are important, 
but also makes them anticipate the answers that are going to come back from cardiology. And then it helps them remember and really understand the importance of the consultant's recommendations. So a simple thing like asking for a consult can be turned into an active learning experience for the junior members of your team, as long as you facilitate them through it. That's a great point. We often don't think about the number of consults we're taking in a day and the learning that's happening during those interactions. Great point. So next, I kind of want to move on to empowering learners. I think that's so important. And I'm curious what strategies we can use as a resident to encourage our junior residents or medical students to take responsibility for their learning while also guiding them at the same time. So one thing that I implemented both when I was a resident and now as a staff is that when I see that a resident or a med student doesn't know whether it's a fact or a gap in their knowledge or whatever it is, I try and empower them to go read up about it rather than just giving them the answer and tell them to come back and teach the group about whatever they've learned whether it's you know the medications that have mortality benefit and heart failure or whether it's you know that we're diagnosing someone with a very rare disease or something like HLH it allows the resident or med student to show what they've learned show their abilities as teachers and it also guides them in how or what they should learn another thing that um, I like talking to particularly PGY1s about is what is their learning strategy for the whole year a lot of residents I find don't think about this and particularly with the exam moved up to third year instead of being in fourth year things come up a lot more quickly than you might expect and so my own personal view is that you probably can't do a lot of broad reading while on CTU probably the main activity is to read around cases and part of this is micro time management so if you take the subway or the streetcar to work every day what about using that 15 minutes to read about maybe the three big topics of interesting patients on the team? Just that micro time management helps you a lot in the end. The other thing you might strategize about is whether you're on a subspecialty rotation, how you might plan out your reading time during that rotation, because that may actually give you more time to read. You might look at what the rotation provides on their website in terms of review articles to read. Try to get through the important topics of the discipline in the subspecialty during your rotation. Do some advanced reading and that'll help you out by the time you get to the Royal College exam. Great point. I think we all need to work on having learning strategies as we move forward with the exam coming up and as we're on different rotations. So thank you both for being here on the show with us. And it was really awesome having both of you as mentors and people to look up to and having you facilitate some of our teaching experiences. And thank you so much for being on the show. It was great having you. Thanks for having us. Thanks a lot. Roundtable is hosted online by Healthy Debate. Read more at healthydebate.ca slash roundstable. Follow us on Twitter at Roundstable or on Facebook at facebook.com slash roundstablepodcast. The Roundstable would not be possible without our fantastic team of on-air and behind-the-scenes personalities. Thank you to all of our hosts, to our producer, Emily Hughes, audio editor, Emilio Garcia-Flores, communications director, Grace Zhao, segment director, Shaliza Halani, 
host director Dan Marinescu, director of quality and evaluation Wilson Kwong, and faculty mentor and founder of the Rounds Table Amol Verma. Join us next week for an exciting discussion of the latest medical research to grace the airwaves. You never know what's in store until you tune in. <laughs>